Welcome to the Ray Harryhausen Podcast, the show dedicated to the life, career and films of a special effects titan. Join us as we host in-depth discussions about the work, influences and legacy of this uniquely talented filmmaker. Brought to you by the Ray and Diana Harryhausen Foundation, we will be delving into Ray's archive to bring a unique insight into his work, including exclusive audio from the man himself from our own archives. We will be joined by special guests for retrospectives, exclusive announcements and competitions. So this podcast is a must-listen for all fans of the world of Ray Harryhausen, animation and classic filmmaking. Hello and welcome to episode 16 of the Ray Harryhausen podcast. We're making a departure from our normal podcast and looking particularly at the music of Ray Harryhausen films. Now, that's such a vast subject, we're going to spread it across three podcasts. And initially, we're going to start in chronology with uh, Ray's early work um, from the 1940s right up to the late 1950s. And we're going to have some excerpts of music and we're going to have uh, hopefully some audio from Ray Harryhausen himself. And we're going to talk a bit about the unsung heroes of film composition. Because of those of you who know Bernard Herrmann and Miklos Rocha and later composers like Laurie Johnson, you might not be as familiar with some of those people who were pretty much sort of backroom boys uh, for uh, film composition in this era. And I'm joined again by collections manager Connor Heaney. Hello, Connor. Hello, John. This is, uh, it's good to be here. This is something we've been wanting to do for a little while now, exploring the music of, of Ray Harryhausen's films. It's something that's so important and something that, that really jumps out to people is, is what great composers Ray got to work with throughout the years. And we're hoping to uncover a few hidden gems as well along the way. So starting with Ray's early black and white pictures, it's going to be a really interesting exploration delving into those early soundtracks and those early scores. Absolutely. So we're going to kick off. What, what what have we got first, Connor? We've got Micey Joe Young. What's, what's the track we're going to be listening to? Well, the first track we're going to listen to here is uh, Joe and the Lion from Mighty Joe Young. And this is part of uh, Joe's introductory scene in the film. So memorable when, when Joe is uh, beating on the lion's cage, the lion snarling at him. Such a wonderful piece of animation by Ray. Um, it's, it's well known that although um, the, the film was a Willis O'Brien animation production, Ray probably did around 90% of the actual animation of the Joe model. This scene is is one of the classic scenes of the film, just goes to show how much uh, character and how much emotion that Ray could invest into this uh, lovable gorilla creature. And so Joe and the Lion is one of many action sequences in the film. Um, when you watch the film again, I watched it again uh, just yesterday to, to refresh my memory, there's so many action sequences in the film, there's a lot going on, and the music obviously matches that with high intensity. And so the themes that you'll hear in this track are repeated throughout the film during the nightclub sequence and uh, and later sequences too. Um, John, what, what are your thoughts about the, the Mighty Joe Young score? It's extravagant. You know, it's a very large orchestra. It's a very complex score. And it's, um, to, to be pejorative about it, there's a lot of Mickey Mousing going on. And that means if you look at Mickey Mouse cartoons, the music is almost a sound effect. So when Joe is hitting the lion and he's pounding the floor, the music, bomb, 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 follows along. And that's called Mickey Mousing. So in early Silly Symphonies Mickey Mouse cartoons for Walt Disney, the music would very much help the animation walk along and have a certain pace. And this was sort of falling out of favour at the time. So RKO and Mighty Joe Young at the time were considered to be extravagant, rather overblown. The music, which I think is charming and works very well with the film, is very much in a time capsule. And Ray came to Mighty Joe Young when this sort of Mickey Mousing was falling out of favour. I suppose if we have a listen now to Joe and the Lion, we'll get a sense of what we're talking about. I love Mighty Joe and I love the music uh, by Roy Webb and more about Roy in a moment. Let's have a listen.
Roy Webb, not a household name, uh, but a composer who lived for a very long time and worked on many films and was born in 1888 and died in 1982. So um, lived until he was about uh, 94 and worked predominantly with RKO Pictures on pretty much everything that, uh, that came his way. Now, this is the interesting thing and the departure from what we recognise as people like Jerry Goldsmith and Bernard Herrmann um, and Michael Giacchino now, who's doing all those wonderful J.J. Abraham films. The studio would give you the composer who was available and, and sometimes give you the music that had previously been recorded. So it wasn't a case of Ray Harryhausen if he had a choice on this picture, choosing a composer, he was very much working, as was Willis O'Brien, with the composers who were available. Years ago at the BBC, if you were making a television programme, if you were a director, you'd find out week to week which show you were working on, whether it was Zed Cars or Doctor Who and so on. The landscape for film and television has changed vastly. Production companies are set up for individual films or individual television programmes. And that's a good thing because it gives a different sense of style and there isn't that sense of pedestrian production. Um, but it also means that people are constantly fighting for the next project. In the studio system, the people behind the scenes weren't well known. Um, Ray Harryhausen, for example, didn't become well known until much later on. And these people who are the, the workhorses, if we can call them that, of film music, would, would have no real choice in what they did and often wouldn't have much choice in how they did it. So things would be very defined. And I think within those tight parameters, uh, Roy Webb is, is one of the best exponents of that music. Um, unfortunately, many of the recordings don't exist anymore, and we'll go into that a little bit later on, the technical aspect of it. But um, it's a great one to open with, a powerful one to open with. And I think for Ray Harryhausen himself, Connor, it was the very best launch pad in terms of, of a film to work on. Mighty Joe Young, a very expensive studio picture. Yes, that's something that's worth, worth remembering, is that as Ray's first movie, the first project he worked on, and you know a, a dream come true in itself because he got to work with his hero and mentor, Willis O'Brien, but Ray as first technician on such a, a large film, what, a, what an ostentatious start to a career. It was a big budget affair, it, it, was, a, it was a big success, and it received an Academy Award for Best Special Effects. And this may be something that people looking back at Ray's films now might not appreciate as much. Um, they maybe think of Ray's black and white films as being lower budget affairs. But Mighty Joe Young was a big film with a big orchestra and lots of uh, major players involved, uh, produced by, by John Ford and Marion C. Cooper. So many callbacks to a film from 15 years earlier, King Kong, which everybody knows was Ray's favourite film. And I think the, the score to Mighty Joe Young uh, is quite reminiscing of Max Steiner's work on King Kong. It's the same kind of bombastic and larger-than-life feeling. Absolutely. You know, Cooper originally wanted Max Steiner to score Mighty Joe, but um, he couldn't get, say, a release from his Warner Brothers contract. So I think that's why Webb kind of stuck to a, a as you say, bombastic King Kong feel, because the template had very much been set, you know, Max Steiner and his work for 1933's King Kong is very much a landmark in film music and one that all of the, the composers today recognise. Um, so it's a great one for us to, uh, to open with. It's incredible when you look at the internet movie database for just how many films and television shows that some of these composers worked on. I think Roy Webb is credited with over 300 films. Um, and so this particular piece uh, has a lot of themes that are reminiscent of Max Steiner. So this is this is an interesting one in that it seemed to fit together quite nicely. Roy Webb's particular skill set and the large bombastic production that, that Mighty Joe Young required. Now, in contrast to that, a much lower budget, a much uh, faster shoot, uh, a much more contained story. The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, based on Ray Bradbury's short story that was published in the Washington Post was to be Ray Harryhausen's next project. And David Botolf was the composer there. And uh, he again lived to a grand age of 80. And you've got, uh, Connor, a, a clip to play for from uh, Beast and 20,000 Fathoms, haven't you? That's right. This is the uh, the iconic scene of the film, or one of the one of the most iconic scenes from the film, anyway. The scene where the Beast, the Redosaurus, attacks and destroys the lighthouse. 
which is the scene from the Ray Bradbury tale, The Foghorn, that inspired the film so much. Now, it's interesting, when you look back at, at Ray Harryhausen and Ray Bradbury, the two Rays as teenagers would uh, would plan how they were going to work together as, as adults, how they were going to use um, Bradbury's literary genius and Ray Harryhausen's animation to create these wonderful tales of uh, dinosaurs and uh, and wonderful creatures. Um, unfortunately, this was their, their sole collaboration on a, on a major picture, and it came about largely by circumstance. But again, it's great to see that uh, two teenagers would grow up to, to fulfil their dreams in such a fashion, and this, this short sequence just exemplifies what, what wonderful imaginations they had. And so when you listen to this piece, it's very atmospheric, and it, it reminds you of that evocative animation from Ray. Lots of shadows, lots of darkness, and a very iconic sequence with the lighthouse. Now, David Botolf, he also scored um, over 300 movies in his career. If we think about modern day composers, you know, like Jerry Goldsmith, John Williams and so on, who are very prolific, it's nowhere near 300. I mean, to do 300 films a year, you would have to be scoring five or six, seven films, you know, in a 12 month period. Very unusual. Um, It meant very little um, opportunity for creative growth. It meant very little opportunity to choose your orchestra, work with the director, see see what's best musically. So sometimes it can feel, um, not in this case, but sometimes it can feel like a sledgehammer cracking a nut. And I think it's it's telling that these early composers who, who were extremely talented um, weren't ones that continued to work with the, uh, the Harryhausen family of filmmakers, with Ray and Charles Schneer and, and the others. Um, as we move on next to um, It Came From Beneath the Sea in 1955, how would you best like to um, pronounce the surname? We'll both have a crack at it. It's uh, Misha Bacon Lichenloff. Is that no, correct? No, no, no. It's uh, Mika Bakalinikov. I've written here phonetically to, to help me with the podcast notes. And he, he would go on to score all three of the, the Columbia Ray Harryhausen pictures, starting with It Came From Beneath the Sea. And I think it's very fitting that this is also the time that uh, Charles Sneer came on board and began to work with Ray, and it was a partnership which lasted for for many decades and was hugely successful. Uh, But with these early films, as we've said, Ray's solo pictures had quite a low budget and they really had not much time to prepare the films either. So when Misha Bakalinikov came on board, this was something I think he was was a master of. He was a master of putting together soundtracks for films in a, in a very short period of time and actually reusing material from previous films from from the music library of, of previous scores. Absolutely and it's interesting as you've noted there uh, Bakken Lichenloff has become part of that initial family hasn't he? He's rolled over from one film to the next so I think his work is um, has a more contemporary feel for its time it has a more mid-50s feel if we look at you know, scores for um, Invasion of the Body Snatchers and, and, and other similar sci-fi from the time. You know, rather, you know, with the exception of the Theramane, you know, this, this feels very much evocative of the time. Um, and the, uh, the clip we're going to be playing is uh, The Tentacle and It versus the Golden Gate Bridge. Is that right? That's right. And there's actually a third, The Tentacle, The It versus the Golden Gate Bridge and a track called Mr. Monster. Now, the track Mr. Monster uh, has a theme which was reused for all three of the 
of the Columbia black and white pictures. It was used in 20 million miles to Earth and Earth versus the Flying Saucers as well. So you'll probably recognise it if you've seen those films before. You recognise the piece, very effective, short, four-note theme. And this was quite typical of Bakalinikov's work. Uh, but this is, uh, as you say, very of its time, very contemporary for the, for the mid-1950s. I think... Um, for somebody who was born after after these um, classic science fiction creature films were created, uh, we get a lot of our information from pop culture, uh, TV shows like The Simpsons or uh, the Joe Dante film Matinee about these classic films. And um, that this music, if you played it to anybody and said, where do you think this music comes from? Even if they'd never seen a Ray Harryhausen film before, they would probably rightly guess that it's a... It's a science fiction film from the 1950s, or it's a it's a creature feature from the 1950s, and I think this is a perfect perfect atmosphere for the movies that Ray was creating at the time. We've come to a point where we're going to talk about the the technical aspects of the film because the clips that we've played for you have been beautifully recreated and re-recorded in recent years. Now um, they're all available on the Monstrous Movie Music label mmmrecordings.com, and they've really taken some amazing efforts to painstakingly re-record these with um, top orchestras around the world, and it's with the Radio Symphony Orchestra of Slovakia. It's interesting how many films do get scored now in Eastern Europe. There's there's some significant orchestras of um, very high standard working uh, today. Now, why is it that we're not hearing the original music? Well, to get into some of the technicalities of it, the film would have originally been scored on a scoring stage on magnetic tape and possibly in stereo more often than not. A mix would have been made down to mono again onto magnetic tape, and then that would have joined in a mixing studio the film, a cutting copy of the film, a final cutting copy of the film, a separate magnetic track for dialogue, a separate magnetic track for sound effects, practical sound effects such as footsteps, separate magnetic track for atmospheres such as inside space, outside space, traffic noise, the weather and so on, and then a myriad of separate tracks for different special effects such as alien voices and laser guns and so on. Now the idea all of these separate music magnetic tracks would be mixed down at different sound levels, so the dialogue would always be slightly higher than the music and the special effects sounds would sometimes be higher than the dialogue for dramatic effects, but it would be honed down, married down, onto one single magnetic strip of sound that incorporates all of the sounds that we've just heard singularly that have been loaded up through the um, the tracking system. Now, when that happens, all of those individual tracks are then disposed of. Because it's been mixed down, you've gone through the sound mix process, you have what you need to create the optical sound that is printed on the side of 35mm prints that get sent to cinemas. 
So all of those original track elements, the separate dialogue, the separate sound and so on and music, they're all either reused by wiping them magnetically with a magnet or they're junked. They're simply thrown away for storage purposes. Because of that, the original soundtracks for many motion pictures right up until, well, actually right up until um, the early 80s, um, the, the separate elements for the Raise the Titanic, the John Barry film, do not exist for this very purpose uh, because of the the, the, uh, the working practices, if you will, of, of um, sound recording and, and production techniques. So the only way to hear these music sessions separately is to re-record them. So luckily the sheet music still exists. The people working on this have tried to embody the same temperaments and try to use the same instruments so it sounds very much like the original films but it's not the original recordings. We will play at the end of this episode some original recordings from Max Steiner so that you can get a different sense of it. If the original recordings did exist they certainly wouldn't be as good a quality in terms of fidelity but I think for purists they do like to hear the original recordings. I've certainly heard recordings with Bernard Herrmann which are fantastically good in stereo and you can hear Mr. Herman barking his instructions to the orchestra. So that, if you like, explains why films need to be re-recorded. But um, it didn't spoil your enjoyment, Connor, I guess, listening to them, but you did realise that they were contemporary technical recordings. No, I think it's clear the um, a lot of love has been put on into these re-recordings and uh, they are they're, they're obviously very accurate renditions. Uh, if you look into the Monstrous Movie Music Back Catalogue, I would recommend reading the liner notes of these fantastic soundtracks because there's a lot of information in them and uh, lots of behind-the-scenes uh, secrets and details about about the, the process behind making these. Sometimes forgotten about um, creative people and the soundtracks that they were able to put together. So, no, I, I, um, I enjoy listening to these... Uh, faithful renditions the original recordings are obviously on the on the films themselves for for you to listen to by comparison but it's great to have these clear and uh, high fidelity recordings to to enjoy so it came from the beneath the sea was a Misha Bakalainikov score and one that's very evocative of the era but we're going to go to something a little different now and it's a, a Ray Harryhausen project which I don't think we've even mentioned on our podcast yet and it's one that can occasionally get forgotten about the Animal World, the Irwin Allen film of 1956. Uh, John, what, what, is your, what are your thoughts on The Animal World? Do you want to tell the listeners a little bit more about this uh, kind of oddity in the, in the canon of Ray Harryhausen movies? Well, because The Animal World isn't a feature film, it's, it's, a, it's a sort of a documentary, if you will. It's a David Attenborough-style project, and Ray contributed the dinosaur sequences. And it's, in, in some way, it's a bit of a curate's egg. You know, people who see it are really fascinated by it. And it's actually finally been made available on Blu-ray. I think it's this year. And it's one that's, you know, purists of Ray Harryhausen will know the animal world and will know the influence that uh, the film has. Um, but it's, a yes, it's by Irwin Allen, who's like one of my favourite film producers. And everyone knows Irwin Allen's work, even if they haven't um, remembered the name, because he made all those disaster movies in the 70s, such as The Poseidon Adventure and the time tunnel and so on but um it's um includes live action footage of animals um along with the uh, the stop motion which is only a few minutes of dinosaurs but it is those dinosaurs that feature on the poster uh, and the intention was to show the progression of life over time and a sort of an evolution and uh you know it was much more of a scientific film and one that you might find that was played to children in schools but uh, it wasn't a short film it's 82 minutes and it's certainly one that's worth tracking down. Warner Brothers have done a lovely restoration job of it, and it's now available on Blu-ray. The dinosaurs that appear include the Allosaurus, a Stegosaurus, and a pair of Ceriotaurus, um, a Triceratops, and a Tyrannosaurus, and a female Brontosaurus, along with uh, one of her hatchlings. So I've, um, I've done the research, um, and there are even uh, segments that were included in the Viewmaster slideshow reels as well so it was one that was reused we talk about some of the music in Ray Harryhausen's films being library or source music from Columbia Pictures well uh, some of the footage was reused um, in Night Gallery and uh, also in the film Trog as well and the re-release of The Black Scorpion so it's it's one of those films that uh, kind of 
has popped up here and there, um, but isn't considered wildly to be like one of Ray's great projects, but certainly a bit of a sort of a curate's egg. So that track was called Survival and the Ceratosaurus. Very much dinosaur music, I think. It's got that lumbering pace. It's got the, the dramatic sequence for the for the battle. Uh, this, this music was taking place while a volcano goes off in the background and there's two dinosaurs fighting in, in the foreground and uh, just classic piece of dinosaur action. And the animal world was also very interesting because... It was the second and final time that Ray got to work with Willis O'Brien. A very short period of time, I think they had six weeks or so with Ray doing the animation and and Willis O'Brien supervising. But I know that Ray felt that that was one of the the highlights really of of his entire career was getting to work with someone he admired so much. And uh, this, although it was a a short project and one that Ray didn't have uh, much control over, it was a quite unique and a source of curiosity for, for years to come afterwards. And I think the, the score fits perfectly. And of course, 
10 years later, the classic 1 million years BC would bring raised dinosaur visions to life um, in, in completion, so to speak. There's a very similar battle in that film too. And it's great to be able to bring composers, you know, back into the into the mainstream with our with our podcast. Paul uh, Sortel, who was the the Polish-born composer for Animal World, you know, his work is to be applauded, and we very much recommend people go to Monstrous Movie Music to find um, find out more because they do copious insert sleeves as well for all of the soundtracks. So um, we applaud them and their efforts. Um, what's up next, Connor? So next up, back to more familiar ground, is the classic main title theme from Earth vs. the Flying Saucers. Now again, this is very evocative of alien attack movies in the 1950s. Um, It fits very well. Uh, This was a a piece which again was put together from previous movies by Misha Bakalainikov. He would take pieces from from previous films, uh, from this stock of uh, film scores, and then he would tweak them ever so slightly to make them fit the, the subject at hand. So when listening to this, it really feels like a bespoke piece of, of science fiction magic. And it sets an ominous tone for the film to come. surprising you know it's um he's more of a sort of a musical director or musical editor in this case and it's surprising the amount of work and effort it takes to get to trawl through library to, to try and find library pieces that will actually fit the picture i mean it would have almost been easier to have done a spotting session with uh, with a small orchestra but it was the way in which the studios worked and it was certainly very effective and it wasn't something audiences scratched their heads and said oh i think i've heard that cue on another film so the the first the fast turnaround of of product and the lack of I won't say the lack of gratitude but the lack of lack of recognition from the studios you have to remember this is a time when if you wanted to do a newspaper article or an interview with a star of the day Clark Gable or Marilyn Monroe you needed to go through the studio they would give you the access you would have to give them questions in advance they would give you the photographs so everything was extremely well controlled and if we just you know, cross over the other side of town to the Walt Disney Company. People imagined that Walt Disney did all of the drawings and backgrounds and everything when a film came out because it said Walt Disney Presents. The animators weren't credited significantly, um, and in some cases at all, on some of the movies. And certainly the background artists and the other technicians didn't really get much of a mention. So the impression one got was that these things just kind of happened by kind of osmosis almost. That's not the case now because we have the internet and we have independent productions giving, if you if you like, life and light to every department. But this is at a time when nobody was really known. It was only the stars of the film that would get any kind of recognition. And certainly the producers, the directors and even Ray Harryhausen at this stage, uh, Connor, wouldn't have um, any sort of fan base or any sort of recognition at all. And the fact that people can work on 300 films gives a sense of that momentum. If you stop, you'll stop getting the work. And so you can't afford to say no to anything. So it's a case of not saying yes, but just being always available. So, you know, I've I've heard stories from people from old Hollywood who talk about being very unwell, never having time off, never get, getting anything close to maternity or paternity leave or booking holidays. It was simply a case of, if you want this job, the job owns you. And, you know, it's not the way we live our lives today. You know, things have drastically changed. And, you know, in many ways for the better, but very keen for all of these composers to get the mention they're getting. And as a Harryhausen buff myself and a trustee of the foundation, I have a lot to say and a lot of knowledge about the later composers, but the more, um, the earlier composers, not so much. And so I think for both of us, Connor, it's been a bit of an exploration, hasn't it, into this kind of, 
um, unrecognised world of the, the 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 film composer editors. Yes, I think I think you're right. I think it's, it is a slightly more unknown area of. Uh, of, of Ray Harryhausen's work and something that maybe isn't celebrated as much as it should be. Um, I would recommend that uh, anybody who wants to to find out a little more about this to watch the extras on the colorized versions of these Columbia films. It came from Beneath the Sea, Earth vs. the Flying Saucers and 20 Million Miles to Earth. There's a short documentary from uh, David Schechter about Mika Bakalinikov and uh, and the work that he did and just how this process that John's been describing worked in a, in a little more detail uh, using the film library and reusing uh, cues from and themes from previous films and it's an interest it's a really fascinating area to explore I can't imagine how a lot of these uh, technicians and a whole lot of these musicians were able to to be so prolific and creative at the same time uh, a very different world as you say. But speaking of this, uh, we move on to 20 Million Miles to Earth and we're going to play the, the music from a very iconic scene in the film. It's a scene where the emir emerges, hatches from his egg and emerges from the jelly, rubbing his eyes, looking very vulnerable. And the music here was actually composed for the film. This was something that was specifically composed for this scene, which was relatively rare given that the kind of patchwork nature of the music around but this is something specifically composed by Bakalinikov and uh, it's, it's a more subtle and gentle theme it fits the the mood perfectly there's the electric organ in the background which just gives it that slightly otherworldly feel and I think it's a, it's a really nice piece it really reminds you of, of one of the iconic sequences from that film Yes, it really evokes the film, doesn't it? When you hear just the music, it, it really evokes the film. Um, it is surprising, you know, the, the list of 18 composers whose music appears in 20 Million Miles to Earth kind of reads like a roll call of the composers of the day. Um, and it, and it, it is, you know, even Miklos Rocha, Max Steiner, you know, these are the cues from work they did on other productions, just all available. I mean, it would never happen now. You would you'd never be able to get... Um, one of today's big composers and just use bits and bobs and sort of dial it into your film. Um, but it's very effective. There, there's no sense of patchwork. There's no sense of, you know, robbing Peter to pay Paul or it's, um, you know, it's kind of a collage of music. In a strange way, there's a there's a house style, I think you can say, that with these Columbia films from the time, it worked really well. And if if you were somebody in charge you would continue this 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 regime i think if i you know i produce today and i work with composers and how i work is i will use music that i like and ask a composer to work up something similar so it gives us a a common ground to 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 work within um a very different system in the past but um it's been it's been fascinating hearing all of this music and and almost all of them i think have been from the um we've we talked about them before mmmrecordings.com the monstrous music people so definitely worth a look and for a young person like yourself Connor I imagine it's not um, something you'd normally expect to be listening uh, to through your headphones I guess that's part of the appeal is that it is you know slightly obscure now it's a it's interesting to delve into something that is in danger you know it would be in danger of being forgotten about if it wasn't for for labels such as monstrous movie music the, the fact that they've gone to such uh, exhaustive lengths uh, to preserve this music for future generations, I think, it is very important. And um, we're just going to play one final track from Mighty Joe Young here, um, which I thought was very interesting to explore. It's the beautiful dreamer sequence from the nightclub scene in Mighty Joe Young. Um, although that wasn't a scene which Ray actually animated, this is one of the the rare scenes that was which animated by the second technician, largely, Pete Peterson. Uh, when re-recording the music for this film, Monstrous Movie Music invited Ray along 
to play the cymbals on this track. So what you're going to hear is some of Ray's musical talent as he crashes the cymbals together for this uh, iconic piece of music. And again, this uh, this goes to show just how much effort that um, has been put into these re-recordings. And it's a it's a sequence that most people will have seen the film will remember well with uh, Joe holding the piano above his head and Terry Moore playing the piano there. Mighty Joe Young is something that we're, we're going to talk a little bit about after playing this track, uh, very evocative of a classic film. That's wonderful. And as Connor was mentioning, on the sleeve notes to Mighty Joe Young from uh, Monstrous Movie Music, there's actually a picture of Ray um, crashing the cymbal. So um, it's fabulous. And now to bring us right up to date, you've got some very exciting news. Who would have thought Mighty Joe Young news? Either we're, either we're very late with our news or it's something new and exciting. What's happening, Connor? Well, unbelievably for a film that is nearly 70 years old, there are still artefacts and still fascinating pieces from the film being discovered. So within our own archive we have over 50 key drawings, storyboards and other sketches and designs from Mighty Joe Young as well as countless stills and other documents relating to the film and it's something that we've been exploring in in some depth recently. Uh, But aside from our archive, a wonderful piece has been discovered at the University of Aberystwyth in Wales. Uh, they've discovered a scrapbook from the film, not a scrapbook, uh, an album um, from the film of watercolours, of storyboards, stills, and most interestingly of all, an, a page which is autographed by the entire cast and crew, as well as doodles from probably Willis O'Brien and Ray Harryhausen themselves. So there's uh, there's O'Brien, Harryhausen, we've got uh, Robert Armstrong, Terry Moore, all of the stars and, and crew of the film. And uh, this has been uncovered within the private archive at the University of Aberystwyth. So they are planning on displaying material from this album. And we at the Foundation will be making a very special appearance on the 22nd of November to to launch this exhibition. We're going to talk a little bit about Mighty Joe Young and the lost treasures of the Harryhausen archive. Well, that's fabulous. And it kind of adds to the roll call of exhibitions and special talks we've done this year and we of course had a big part to play in the Barbicans Into the Unknown exhibition which now has moved to Greece with the Onassis Foundation Um, but we do have the Tate Britain exhibition which is 
free to see in central London and we'd urge people to go down and take a look at some of the pieces from the foundation. Pegasus is there, Medusa is there and a few others and also some very interesting and rare pieces of art, some which were owned by Ray Harryhausen and some which were in the deep, deep archive of Tate Britain. Now they've created a special space all for itself, a special gallery space. It's beautiful. I would recommend you get down and have a look. It won't be on forever but it's a very special place and a very special space. And Connor, you're going to be taking flight to a major, major exhibition um, on the other side of the pond. That's right. I'm headed to Oklahoma to celebrate the Mythical Menagerie exhibition, which is a large exhibition, as you say, and the first exhibition in the United States for for many, many years. Uh, But I won't be going by myself. On October the 20th, I'll be joined by Ray's daughter, Vanessa Harryhausen, who will be making her first appearance at a a special panel and Q&A session. And she'll be talking about some of her memories and her her father's work uh, from her her unique point of view. Somebody who grew up with Guanji in her her pram and who grew up watching her dad and, and being on set of all these classic films. This is a really unique appearance from Vanessa. She's never done anything like this before and it's very exciting to be to be hosting this at a screening of Clash of the Titans in Oklahoma. It is, so we're going to do a bit of globe trotting. So we're going to finish off this episode now with um, some audio from Ray Harryhausen himself and then a lovely piece of music which will be recognisable to fans around the world. It's the original King Kong recording and it has something very unique at the front of it, of course. It has the RKO radio special effect beeps that it gives um so as the iconic aerial comes up and he goes beep 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 i think that's pretty impressive i could replace the beeps there i think connor do you think yeah well i think what you have to do when you listen to this track is put yourself in the shoes of a 13 year old boy in 1933 possibly most of the films you've seen beforehand may have been silent or at the very least hadn't had quite as a an effective uh, soundtrack and so you just you just imagine yourself sitting in that dark cinema when this logo pops up and the incredible Max Steiner music kicks in. Uh, it was certainly an experience that Ray never forgot. Now before we go today we'd like to extend a huge thank you to David Schechter who's the producer at Monstrous Movie Music. As we've mentioned several times throughout this show All of the music that you've heard today has come from releases from this fantastic label and we'd thoroughly recommend that you check them out in more detail. The CDs have fantastic artwork and incredibly in-depth liner notes and it's a great opportunity to explore an aspect of Ray's career which may have otherwise been a little difficult to find information on. So check out mmmrecordings.com and enjoy delving into the monstrous music. So here's Ray Harryhausen, and as a reminder, our next special music episode will feature the very great Bernard Herrmann, and we'll be looking at all of the films that Bernard Herrmann worked on with Ray Harryhausen, and the one that he didn't. So from Seventh Voyage of Sinbad to First Men in the Moon, please join us for the next episode. And from us, I'd like to say thank you very much, thank you to Connor, and remember, go to rayharryhausen.com to find out more about us and our social media links. Thank you, and goodbye. I innocently walked one Saturday afternoon into the Grommel's Chinese Cinema to see a film called King Kong. And when I came out, I haven't been the same since. So you can see what an influence a, uh, a film can be on a young mind. I was 13 at the time, and I'd never seen a film like that before. And uh, I, I knew it wasn't a man in a suit, particularly the gorilla and the dinosaurs. And uh, the picture was so so overwhelming that I, I felt I had to find out how it was done.
Copyright in the Ray Harryhausen podcast is owned by the Ray and Diana Harryhausen Foundation, a registered charity, number SC001419, 2017. This recording may not be reproduced in whole or in part without written permission from the Foundation. The views expressed within these podcasts do not necessarily reflect those of the Foundation, its trustees or employees. For further terms and conditions, please contact us at rayharryhausen.com where you can find our Facebook and Twitter links.